Welcome to the Willow Valley Podcasting Channel, where exciting podcasts are created by Willow Valley residents, for Willow Valley residents, and about Willow Valley residents. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Ray Lowe, and we're here in our wonderful little studio here at Willow Valley, and we're talking to a Willow Valleyan today. And remember, a purpose that we have of Life Under the Willow Tree is to take some people that are kind of hidden in our community that are gems, but we don't know it because we don't know who they are and what they're all about. And the purpose is to tell their story a little bit so that we can have really wonderful, exciting kinds of events and things like that. And and so we have with us here uh, Carol McAllister today. And I met Carol in the swimming pool long ago and oh so far away. And, and Carol has fit into our podcasting group, and she's a very, very important part of it in two ways. She's taken on a lot of the editing functions so that she can take this podcast where I'm going to do a whole lot of ums and uhs, and she's going to take them out of it for us. And she also has become uh, quite an accomplished host where she has been doing interviews with people in the community. So we finally decided to make it her turn. So she is over here on the other side of the table in the hot seat, and uh, she has a really exciting story. So let's start, Carol. First of all, say good morning to everybody. Good morning. And you know, I tried to put this off several times. Yes, you I did. I didn't want to be over on this side. <laughs> well, you know, but but it's, it's interesting. So we're going to start with the boring part of Carol's life, and she's going to tell us a little bit about her background. And then I'm going to show you how a person can come out and just uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to let you decide how you want to think about Carol when you're done. But she is an extremely exciting person, in my view, at this point. So, Carol, where are you from? How long have you lived at Willow Valley? Uh, what did you do before we got into this exciting adventure? Talk to us. Okay. Well, I'm from upstate New York. I was raised uh, west of Syracuse, New York, in a little town called Marcellus, just on the edge of the Finger Lakes. And I have family who still live there. And I went to college at the University of Colorado in Boulder in the 60s. You know, those were exciting times. And graduate school in Salt Lake City in social work. So then I went back to Syracuse, and I spent a decade in child and adolescent psychiatry as a clinical social worker at the medical school. But of course I burned out and um, I decided to go west again. And this time I decided to go to New Mexico, a place I had never been. And I drove all the way across the country by myself, except at the last minute one of my graduate students came with me. But mostly I was headed out there by myself. I had, didn't have a job, didn't have a place to live, didn't know a soul. <laughs> so that tells you something. And um, I lived in Santa Fe for a couple of years, was a tour guide, believe it or not. So I know more history of New Mexico than most natives. And then um, I moved down to Las Cruces, where I taught at the university, and I taught social work, and then I moved into administration. So that's where I retired from, was the University of New Mexico. Now, when I first was there, I was a professor so of social work. So those are only nine-month contracts, just like all teachers. They work for nine months. And then the summers are spent doing research or hanging out with your family or whatever. And I needed a summer job. And I wanted to go into the park service. 
So I applied. Now, the way you, you don't get into the big parks, the summer jobs are all taken by the same professors year after year after year. But there are asterisks next to the park names in the list of parks in the National Park Service that never fill their summer quota. So I could have gone to White Sands um, because that was just over the mountains, but it's hot in southern New Mexico and humid in the summer. Everybody thinks the southwest is dry, but I got news for you. The summer is the rainy season, so it's humid. So there was Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Monument. Now it's a national park. Okay, don't give it away yet. Okay, uh, let's back up a little bit because there's a pattern here already. Okay, Carol's telling us she's pretty conservative. She's a college professor. She's doing all these things she's supposed to do. But, you know, it's not above her to head off cross country without a job. That's right. So this is this is telling us something, and it's leading up to a summer adventure, which really tells you who Carol is. So now you can go to our park, and you decided to be a park ranger. For the summer. And you were the first woman to do this? Yes. They had called seven people, seven men, and they all said no. Now, that should have been a red flag, but I wasn't real bright in those days. <laughs> So I took the job as long as they would let me have my two dogs with me. And it was the wilderness rim, the north rim of Black Canyon. There are two rims, the south rim and the, the north rim. And this is a wilderness rim. You're there by yourself. Okay, so let's set the stage. Tell us a little bit about this park. Where is it located? You know, how big is it roughly? You know, we don't have to get into square miles and things like that. But give us a sense of what it is. Well, it's in western Colorado. It's in the high plains. It's at The altitude is 8,000 feet. So it's, it's up there. Uh, the air is thin. It's, uh, the main ranger station is in Mount Rose. The big town that's close by where you can actually fly in is Grand Junction. But I, my entrance to my park was outside of Crawford. Now that's 50 miles around the end of the, the canyon. It's just the canyon's just like a witch had taken her wand and rented the top of this plateau. And there's this steep, steep, 2,000 foot deep canyon and you drive around the end of it there's no bridge across it to get to crawford which is a you know a ranching town it has one general store and everything is in it including the post office and then you go outside of that and the 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 entrance into the park is a 10 mile dirt washboard road you know the secret to driving on a washboard road? Uh, I don't want to know, Carol. Fast. I'm going to leave that to you adventurers. You drive fast. <laughs> and around the curves, you lose it, and you end up in you the sagebrush. You could have just hiked down one end of the canyon <laughs> and, and hiked up the other end, too. No, you can't. The hiking is very, very Okay, so when you took this summer job, did you know how remote this place is? Had you been there before? I had not. I had no clue. So I told you, you I wasn't real smart in those you days. You did this sight unseen, okay? Yep. And you tell me you're not an adventurer and you're not a risk taker, right? Well, I'm stupid, one or the other. <laughs> well, I'm going to give you a chance to reposition your thinking at the end of this thing, but but let's let's get in here. So here you are, you're a single female, mm-hmm. and you're roughly how old at this time? 36. 36 years old, okay? And you're going out into the wilderness, okay? And uh, did anybody tell you that sometimes there are evil things lurking in the wilderness? Well, nobody really did. I suppose some of my friends said you ought not to do that, but I needed the job. I wanted to go there. I was hell-bent on finding myself a rancher. I was going to stay. I wasn't going to come back to social work. Okay, so you, you come into this park, and obviously they had quarters for you somewhere. 
Yes. Okay. So, so describe what these were like. Is this like uh, uh, a Marriott Hotel suite? I had a Quonset hut, a Korean War vintage Quonset hut. Um, you know those metal, yeah, round Quonset huts. That was that was my cabin. No electricity, of course. Any insulation in them? No, no. Okay. It was strictly a summer. Summer. So when the rain came down, you, you heard it. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, and it. But I had. I didn't have electricity, but I had bottled gas. I could live with the Amish easy. So I had a refrigerator, small refrigerator. I had a stove, all powered by bottled gas. We actually, I think, we had a well. The campground did not, but I think I did because I had separate buildings, outbuildings. I had a shower building when I had a gas tank in there and I could have a hot shower and I had an outhouse uh, a real outhouse not oh, a porta potty oh exciting yes very <laughs> exciting and I had a building for the trash that you have to pick up from the campground and you had to padlock it seriously padlock it against the bears so this this Quonset hut was on the fringe of the campground is that it was a mile from the campground a mile from the yeah campground. along uh, you have drove uh, a serpentine road right at the edge of the of the canyon to get to it but it was a mile away from the campground so you are pretty isolated here. very isolated okay and uh, <clears throat> you had to do things uh, that uh, I'm going to list a couple and then I'm going to ask you who trained you. So you were you were indicating the other day that you had to chop your own firewood. That's right. Well, you're not a big person, Carol. No, I'm not. I'm five feet tall. <laughs> who, who, who taught you how to chop firewood? Well, the, the maintenance man, the, when I got there, the, the, the head ranger brought me over to the campground and showed me everything. And he said, now the maintenance men will be over tomorrow with your official truck, which was this great big Ford, you know, S50 or whatever. I couldn't even reach the pedals. They had to bring me a lady truck the next, the day after that, a little one, you know. But um, they, and they brought me a chainsaw and showed me how to mix the oil and the gas and took me out to the wood pile, which was supplied by the local sawmill. And they often, they brought their scrap wood, but they often brought their green wood, which is not easy to cut. And they showed me how to run it. Well, I could hardly start the thing. You know, it wasn't no electric connection. You had to pull the cord and it weighed as much as I did. But I got the hang of it. And, uh, but I had only brought a little hatchet with me. So the second day I was there, I had to go back into town to that general store and get a very serious axe and um, learn how to, because I had to not only cut the logs, but I had to split them. Now, the maintenance man, it turned out, I learned at the end of the summer, they all were taking bets with the rangers on the other side about how long I would last. <laughs> okay. All right. So you didn't know any of this before you started, right? None of it. You, just, no. you just knew you needed a summer job. You wanted to be out in the wilderness. You thought this might be cute. Right. Right. And here you are now. You're in a Quonset hut in the <laughs> middle of nowhere. OK. Uh, how did you get food in for yourself? Uh, well, I had to shop only once once a week. And I had to think I brought a lot of canned goods with me because I really didn't know what I was up against. Uh, but and you could at this country store, you could get, you know, meat, potatoes, the basics. You couldn't get anything fancy. But I got two days off every week in the middle of the week. And I went back to Crawford. And I stayed with another ranger who was a history professor from the University of New Mexico. And I did all my serious food shopping once a week. But I didn't know that when I started. Fortunately, I had taken cans of soup. and. Okay. So other than this two days a week, are you pretty much alone in this Quonset hut? I am. Seeing occasionally people that came to camp that would stop by and 
say hi or more likely not say hi. They said, I have a problem. Help me. And right. That's right. Both of the above. I I worked in the campground. Of course, I had to supply the wood for the wood boxes for their fires. And we had a buried water tank. And I was responsible for sanitizing that with Clorox. So you just did a dollop, you know, a, a flip of your wrist. <laughs> okay. So, so this is the scene that we have now, okay? We have Carol out in the middle of the wilderness, alone as a female, age 37. She's five feet tall. Right. All right? We got that picture. Right. Now, now let's get into the serious adventures. And I've got a whole bunch of them here, so we can't cover all of them. And I know there are a couple that you think are more significant, but let me start. Okay? okay. All right. So the bear. Oh. There are there are bears in here, right? <laughs> bears, porcupines, and snakes. So, so talk to me about your bear adventure in the middle of the night. Well, I got up to go to the bathroom, to, and I had to take my flashlight to go to the outhouse. And there it was. Because they come and visit the building where the trash is. But they can't get in. But that's what draws them. Okay. And he froze, and I froze. And then I backed up, and he backed up. My dogs were raising cane, of course, in the house. I hadn't let them out. But that was lucky. I, he, he backed up, and so did I. But after that, I never went out in the middle of the night. Uh, so porta potty now? Yeah. In a, okay. I, I, f- I found a pail. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, the, the second thing is occasionally people would pound on your door. That's right. Because they needed help, right? And, right? and you mentioned a summer rainstorm and one woman who was trapped in her car and she showed up. So tell us about that experience. Well, this was a young woman who had gone to the campground and it was empty because we had had one of those full-on you know, thunderstorms that only the high desert country of western Colorado can produce. And so, yeah, it was 9 o'clock or yeah, it was probably 8 o'clock at night. She knocked on the door. Of course I opened it. And she was soaked to the skin. So, you know, I dried her off and we opened a bottle of Gallo wine, a jug of Gallo and whatever food I had and we ate and we just had the best time. But here's what happened. The next morning we woke up really sick and I thought, gee, I'm more sick than I should be from you know, drinking some wine. And it turned out that the bottled gas had not been hooked up properly. And it had been leaking all night. And we were sick as dogs. Well, I immediately knew what it was. So I opened all the windows and the doors, pulled her outside so we wouldn't blow up. And uh, <laughs> that was that was it. You know, we had to just, I had to go on with my day and go pick up the trash and clean the privies and so chop wood. So gas is prevalent there just like it is in the and, city tenements, yeah, that's right? That's right. Bottled gas can be dangerous no matter what. Okay. you got tons more here, but, but I want to know about the sh- sheep herders. Oh, well, this was open range. So there were always cattle invading the park. And there, when I came home from my day off, uh, I came onto the entrance road. And, and there were sheep for as far as you could see, hundreds and hundreds. And one, maybe two sheep herders. And I had known that they, I already had in, encountered them earlier. Uh, and I knew they were Basque sheep herders, and they didn't speak English. So here I am, surrounded. Now, now, wait a minute. The Basque country is in the middle of Spain. I know, but they were here in Colorado with their little little gypsy cat. Really, they had one of those wagons that looked like a gypsy uh, gypsy wagon. Excuse me. And uh, so here comes this bedraggled guy with a cigarette hanging out of the corner of his mouth. He, you know, the beat up hat. He walks his his old horse to the front of my 
1959 old Chevrolet station wagon, and he ju- he does he just waves his finger at me, turns around, and says, "Follow him." So here I am in first gear, going as slow as a horse can go, thinking I'm going to lose my clutch any minute now. And we go through this mob, you know, the Australians call these mobs of sheep, and the sheep part for him and me, and then they close right up right behind me. So I'm in the middle of hundreds hundreds of sheep and down the road we go well 10 miles at you know two miles an hour and an old stick shift Chevrolet is is uh is difficult on a washboard road but we made it we made it okay now I know your handle was the Lone Ranger Ranger. yeah okay how'd you get that and obviously these experienced (laughs) rangers are uh are making you earn Respect, aren't they? They are. Okay. They, they were wonderful. They, they had a lot of rangers on the other side. I was the only one. So, yes, my handle on, we had a two-way radio. We didn't have cell phones in those days. It was a two-way radio. So my handle was the Lone Ranger. So uh, they, they were really fun. One morning, I was calling in, and they were calling me. It was 7 o'clock. We always checked in with each other. And what I hear is the William Tell overture coming across the radio. <laughs> and then all, all these voices, Hi-ho, Silver! <laughs> so did Tonto appear or not? No, Tonto never showed up. But I laughed and laughed and laughed. Now, they all got in trouble for doing that because we shared our radio with another park uh, further out so you know they were all listening to the same thing but well, they were know, a fun loving group yeah and you can't you you can't be too serious about life when you're out in the middle of nowhere that's right? right that's right okay so we've talked about the little things that have gone on so on a more serious note uh you're a ranger you're out in the middle of nowhere and people get into trouble they do so were you involved in any rescues or anything like that and tell us a little bit about that okay i was involved in a big rescue um Four o'clock, late June, uh, a man comes staggering down my driveway to my Quonset hut, says, my brother-in-law's down in that canyon over there, that draw. He's dehydrated. We didn't have any water. He's collapsed. I don't know what to do. I can't get him to, I can't even get him to stand up. So what does the Lone Ranger do? But call for Tonto. But Tonto is across the canyon, right? And they had just finished a, a helicopter rescue from somebody else who was down where they shouldn't be. And it was the end of the day. And they said, we're out of chopper time. It's getting dark. Figure it out. Figure it out? <laughs> so I threw everything I could think of into my backpack. I grabbed two gallons of water. I, At the last minute, I grabbed a rope. I don't know why. I had a flashlight. Uh, granola bars, a couple of bananas, you know, my sleeping bag, a blanket, you know, that sort of thing. So you have to hike to this draw. They're called draws because they're very narrow. And the entrance to this draw is uh, almost a straight down slide. That's why it's called sliding draw. And it's a, it's a break between two, you know, a rock split in half. And so it's very narrow. And you go down on your... Oh, excuse me. Down on your... <laughs> you can edit that out. You have to go down That's on That's a your visual thing. <laughs> And then, and then it turns out the center of the draw is full of all these big boulders, but the side is very shaly. So it's real loose. So half the time you're sitting and half the time you're walking and you're sliding and sliding. So I, I ditch one of the gallons of water. I can't handle both of them. Down I go, down I go. Well, the other side, we had big, um, you know, they were watching me with their binoculars on the other side. Okay. Okay. And, and we were on the radio. 
they were on the radio with me. But then, just as I found him, about 1,500 feet down, they say, we're going to turn, we can't see you anymore. So we're going to, I mean, just let us know. We're going to turn off the radio because there's nothing we can do. We can't see you. We can't come and get you. Good luck. (laughs) Okay, so I see you're a college professor. That's right. A social worker, no less. You know, no talking here. This is this is real life. So I find him and I tell him to sip the water. He guzzles it, throws up. I give him some more. I said, sip the water. He guzzles it. He throws up. I said, for heaven's sakes, sip the water. You know, I used a little stronger language than that. So he finally did. And I uh, I put him in my good down sleeping bag, which he managed to tear. And uh, I, the call of nature was coming. I had to hike further down to have some modesty and some privacy. And then I had to come up and wrap myself in a blanket, sat on a ledge all night long. It was a long night. Oh, my God. So about, I don't know, five or six o'clock. What time does the sun come up when you're at 8,000 feet altitude? Yeah, pretty early. So I see this sliver of light at the top because it's way up there. It's like railroad tracks, you know, it gets narrower. So I wake him up, give him a granola bar, tell him to sip the water. He guzzles and throws up. I said, oh, for God's sakes. So, uh, but as men will do, bless his heart, he was, you know, 40, 45 years old. He kind of shook himself and said, okay, Ranger, you follow me. I said, not on your life. (laughs) You're vomiting every time I turn around. You follow me. Well, the way up is to climb the boulders. They slide, they settle, and you just say, don't look up. It, you know, he kept saying, when are we going to get out of here if we ever make it? He was very worried. So I said, you just follow me. I wanted to say, come to mama. <laughs> you know, but I was young. So we, we made our way out by climbing each big boulder, letting it slide, settle, get off, climb the next one. But we made it. Now, we're at the, at the top. That's at that sliding part, Right. So we've used all the water. We've smashed the bottles. We've put them all, everything in my backpack. I'm carrying everything, <laughs> not him. And I put the rope around my waist, and then I jimmy my way up, back on one side, feet on the other. So I kind of, I guess they call it crab calling or something, up to the top. Then I throw the rope down and pull him out. Now we have to walk a half a mile back to the cabin. Here comes his brother-in-law running at us. Thank God, you know. Well, yeah. So he throws his brother-in-law into their vintage Volkswagen bus, you know, yellow and red. I can remember it to this day. I go in to get something to change clothes, take a shower, get something to eat. And I felt like Goldilocks because I looked at my refrigerator. The stew was completely gone. The cookie jar was empty. And every beer I had was drunk. (laughs) Plus, in my bedroom, the bed was a mess. He didn't even make the bed. So, you know, Goldilocks has got nothing on me. So is this a summer adventure you would recommend for a whole bunch of teachers who are trying to figure out what to do with their lives? Only if you you really want to fly by the seat of your pants. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are near the end of our time here. Okay. So let's take a minute and kind of sum up. So first of all, this was one summer in your life. Mm-hmm. But a defining one. It was a defining one. Right. Okay. Did you ever feel like you were fearful for your life? No. In here? Even I, climbing up and down these things, rescuing people? You don't. You know what? When, you have, when you're in the moment, you're not afraid. You just do what you have to do. Okay. Uh, there's time for one more comment. Anything you want to tell our people who are listening? 
Well, I think this, the, if you were to take away, I, I think of life as a great big classroom. So everything is a learning experience for me. And boy, was this a, a classroom and a half. But I did discover that I was more resourceful than I realized and that I could think my way out of most anything. And I think that's sort of my approach to life. If you'll sit down and think about things, you can pretty much figure figure out what you need to do. And I cried my eyes out when I left. I did not want to leave. I fell in love with that high country. Yeah, but winter was coming. Winter was coming. It would have been an amusing time to spend the winter there. Yeah. Well, Carol, thanks for being with us today, and thanks for telling your story. And there are more stories we didn't get to. So if you ever get a chance to get Carol aside somewhere, (laughs) you you can tell that she's passionate about telling these stories. You're not infringing on her space when you get her to tell them. So, Carol, Thanks again for being with us, and thanks for being you. You're welcome. Thank you. And Dale, would you sign us off, please? Thanks for listening, and be sure to listen again next week and every week when we'll have another exciting guest.